So the way we're going to do it is uh, I will, uh, Sandy will begin, then I will, she'll read the passage from, um, I could give you 2,500 things to say, but I, I feel like if you don't look at the Bible, give you a framework, it always just feels like a series of imperatives. That's not very inspiring. Uh, and then through that, we'll just work through some issues, and then I'll go back to Sandy on, that, the topic is marriage and ministry. So we, you're at the right place? <laughs> Uh, Sandy said to me, uh, we've been married 30 years in December, the 15th. Yes. I got it right. And uh, she reflected on our 30 years of marriage. The first 10 years were okay. The second 10 years were good. And the last 10 years were great. So we're moving in the right direction. Though I didn't think it was just okay the first 10 years. So it shows you the bias that men and women have. I would have gone great, great, great. But apparently that wasn't the case. So, Sam, why don't you begin, and then I'll continue. Um, Ray and I, uh, we're not soulmates in terms of um, uh, how we are. We're very different. So he's Maltese, I'm Anglo-Saxon. He thinks out loud. He's an external thinker. I'm an internal thinker. His family is very loud. My family is very quiet. His family is very enmeshed, and my family you would describe as disengaged. Uh, he has 92 first cousins. I have 13. His family gets together, or they used to get together, on a weekly basis. I would be lucky to see my brother and sister every six months. He would see his mum, and still does today, every week. I see my mum once a month. He's from a working-class background. I'm from a middle-class background. He's highly relational. I'm very task. Um, he sees the big picture and I see the details. When we got married, he was a very young Christian and I was the more mature Christian. He was a city boy. I was a country girl. He is a morning person, very chirpy at 6.30 this morning. I am a night person. He is male. I am female. But we both love the Lord Jesus. That is our description of our marriage. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter 5 and I'm reading from verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spoil or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This, is, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each, of, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband.
Uh, it's my understanding, uh, I used to be a marriage counsellor before I uh, went into ministry for three years, and uh, it was my understanding that uh, really most marriages are homosexual in nature. Uh, by that I mean um, the man uh, uh, says, uh, uh, sorry, that, that many men treat their wives, love their wives as though they were men, and many women love their husbands like they were women. In this sense, the man says, of course I love you, um, I take out the garbage. And she says, yes, honey, that's lovely, but I'd really love a bit more attention and listening time, please. Well, the woman says to the man, of course I love you, I want to spend all my time with you. And he says, that's lovely, darling, but I really would prefer sometimes some space to myself. There's a, there's a sense where clearly we're both made in the image of God. We're both, we're flesh, uh, uh, we are flesh of, uh, of my flesh and bone of my bones. That is, we share a profound unity, but we are different, which means love needs to be intentional. Um, and you don't have to open your Bibles to realise that men and women are different. Um, even John Gray's kind of early classic in the early 90s, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Pluto, I mean Venus, picks up the kind of the fact that there, is, there are differences. Uh, and, that, uh, and, and really, when you read a passage like this, you're really reminded that God is saying um, that it's, let trust me that I know how to order your relationship and what that looks like. Let me give you the framework. And it is an expression of trust in his will. Um, when I was a marriage counsellor, it was very clear to me that there was an order in every relationship. I just I saw it every time. Every time I've been up close and personal with a homosexual relationship, I've seen an order in relationship. You can't escape it. And so often it's decided by who's got the bigger brain, the sharper tongue, or the biggest biceps. And what God is saying, trust me, let me work out the order of the relationship for you. Let me tell you what it ought to look like as you play out your relationship as husband and wife. So let's begin by just walking our way through the passage and making some applications along the way. Um, okay, the broader context is, we could go to lots of places in Ephesians, but let's go to the simplest place. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. We were created in Christ Jesus to, to do good works. And so the, we are, we're God's workmanship to actually, so we're not saved by good works, but we are created to do good works. And the good works that are spelled out here is the way in which husbands and wives play out their relationship that mirrors the profound eternal relationship of Christ in the church. And so we go to that, what perhaps the most controversial part. It's only been the most controversial part for the last 50 years in the history of the church. It wasn't for the first 2,000 years, but it is controversial. We can't deny that. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And if it kind of sticks in your throat, verse 33 helps a bit. The wife must respect her husband. Notice it's addressed to wives, not to husbands, the one part of the Bible that husbands don't really need to know. It's just not addressed to us. Um, it's uh, not for us males to use as a trump card every time we want sex. Although to be very explicit about your needs within marriage about sex is something you need to learn to do. Um, male or female, there's usually one who wants more sex than the other. And it not, it's not always that the guy who wants it more. I've, there have been a number of marriages in our church where the wife wants more sex and the guy doesn't. So that, but perhaps we could generalise and say usually it's the male. But to be clear in the request without manipulation and to be clear to receive a yes or no in that and not to feel coerced is equally important. Now submission, the word is such a... It just 
is a dirty word in the 21st century. It just conjures up every image that it's not teaching. Being a doormat. Letting your partner beat you up. And the church hasn't been particularly good, let me say, in that how many pastors and priests have said, sent wives back into domestic violence scenarios on the pretext that they ought to submit to their husband and pray that he'll change. You know, you as preachers and teachers of God's word need to be the first to say if there is any woman being abused and beaten in their relationship that you'll be the first to pack their bags to leave with a view of wanting to restore relationship, not destroy it. But what it means to submit means it, you, will allow, you will encourage your husband to lead. It means you will make it your aim to respect your husband in his role. Let's be clear, it doesn't mean that the wife is less than the husband. You know, the first time the verb to submit is used in the New Testament is used of Jesus in Luke 2.51, who went home and submitted to his parents. Here is the Lord and creator of the universe who goes and submits to two beings that he had created and whose very existence depended on his will. So the one thing submission can't mean is inequality. And it can't be a dirty word. It's only a dirty word if you think serving God is a dirty thing. Jesus' great boast, and his eternal boast, dare I say, is that I've not come to do my will, but the will of my Father in heaven. At the end of John 14, he, he actually makes it clear, I want the world to know this, that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father says. Now, I'm not likening parent-child relationships with husband-wife. There is a clear distinction. But, but the whole idea of submitting and respecting someone in an ordered relationship is within the belly of the Trinity itself. The wife is to submit and respect her husband. And not because he deserves it, but as to the Lord. If you waited for him to deserve it, we could be waiting a while. So wives, if I could speak to the ladies in this room, because remember, it's addressed to you and not to anyone else. It's never just about you, you and, and your hubby. It's you, your husband, and the Lord Jesus. Two's company, but three's even better. And in a sense, Jesus functions as a third-party insurance in your relationship. And what he does is he liberates you from the power struggles that haunt so many marriages, where one person, you know what a power struggle is, where one person wants to change another and the other person is equally committed to not wanting to be changed. <laughs> and what this does is Jesus enters into the relationship and disrupts the natural power struggles that develop between two human beings. Yeah, there will be times when your husband will be a poor example of a husband. But remember, behind him stands the saviour of the universe. And Jesus is saying, you can't love me unless you honour him. And he's also saying, if you can't do it for him, I know you can do it for me. That's what liberates you. Every relationship's like that for a Christian, isn't it? It's never just you and the other person. It's you, them, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What drive, he's the reason we're able to love the enemy. He's the reason why we're to operate in whatever relationship we're in because of who he is and what he has done for us in, 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 at dying of the cross. Now, it doesn't mean that the, the wife is to pander to the sin of her husband. I remember we were at Moore College and um, we were on $3,000 a year as a student minister. And, um, and I was persuaded, especially as a Maltese, that I'd given up a lot to go to Moore College financially and didn't need to give any more. And Sandy, from a kind of a, this kind of Disciple background from a, from a growing up said, no, we've still got to tithe at, even on 3,000. I said, you are kidding, aren't you? 
I mean, I've worked out the salary I gave up over four years. That was a lot of money, you know. And uh, I figured that was enough. And uh, she just kind of wouldn't. She wouldn't back down. <laughs> um, don't ever violate your conscience because of your spouse. And submission is giving willingly and not begrudgingly. It's not, I respect you with clenched teeth, but you're going to regret the day you ever cross my path, darling. And you can do that, you know, we can do that to each other. The silent treatment, the throwaway lines, the nagging, the shouting, the public shame. But really, submission, remember, behind submission is respect. That's what, really what we're saying. Your whole orientation is to respect your spouse. Is that you're essentially saying, I'm behind you a thousand percent, even if I happen to disagree. And if you're wrong, I'm not going to dump you with an I told you so. Now, that needs to be modelled publicly as well as privately lived out because there is a watching community. You're actually teaching the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, I remember when a, a couple came to our church, they actually had some, they were related to a, some people in our church, but they weren't Christians, Grant and Anita. And I said to Grant, uh, he came to church after we sort of caught up a couple of sessions, and I said, oh, how would you find the sermon? And he said, to be honest, Ray, I didn't listen to a word you said. I said, okay, I, that's interesting. Uh, well, you know, why was that? And he said, well, I was actually watching your wife. I said, why were you doing that? She said, I was watching. He said, I was watching Sandy because he said, I figured that if she looked like she was interested in what you were saying, then you had something to say. So her attitude to me preaching was actually being watched by a world. And you know what? They have a right to look. They don't have a right to stare and be a sticky beak in your marriage, but they have a right to look. You are modeling the reality of Christ in the church. Now, can I tell you, it doesn't mean it's, it's forever you use this language and you then caricatures come into mind. Um, it's not about passivity in the relationship. So I remember when we started MBM in the early days, 1991, and uh, you know I was working seven days a week. And I remember Sandy had... I was sitting on the lounge. She'd never done this before or since. But I was sitting on the lounge. I may or may not have been watching TV. She sat at my feet, which she'd, I can tell you, I have no other memory of her doing this. She put her hands on my lap and she said, with a really gracious tone, she said, Ray... If it keeps going on like this, it's not going to work. And, uh, ooh, there was a shot over the bow. <laughs> to this day, I can't tell you exactly the implications of what she meant. A, the marriage is not going to work. I can't be a minister's wife. We can't do church planning. But in a sense, she had communicated enough. Now, apparently she had been saying that for four years at Moore College, but I, it had gone one ear and out the other. Um, but for the first time, she said, there is... There, there were going to be con- there, there, there was implied consequences buried in that very gracious piece of communication. That is, I will not be able to continue serving in this relationship as a minister's wife if you do not at least give a day a week to the family rest time. Well, it changed from that moment on. I tell you, if I didn't listen to her at that point, we would not be here today. I'm not sure our marriage would have been here today, but certainly I wouldn't be here speaking to you. The model of this is really Christ's headship of the church in the same way as the church submits to Christ so the head, as the head, so the wife submits to her husband who is the head of that marriage. Now we know that the difficulty of submitting to men is simply because they have abused their role and reflect nothing of Christ's likeness. 
I'm pretty certain that feminism wouldn't have arisen if guys did their job. But the reality is we haven't. It has arisen. And we're going to have to think again from the scriptures, from first principles. Now, wives, you know God loves you. You know why you know why he loves you so much? Not just because he died for you, but what he wants your husbands to be like towards you. And so we move to the next part. Uh, what is the expectation of husbands? And there it is. It's not, it's not rocket science. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Uh, my constant prayer is to be a God-like father and a Christ-like husband. It's kind of like the, the mantra I have in my prayer life. God-like father, Christ-like husband. The verb that's used there is love. The content of that is shaped by the cross. It drips with the blood of Jesus all over it. This uh, uh, love, love your bride who, just like Christ, loved the church who laid down his life for her. For her. Jesus is the head of the church. That headship is, is defined really essentially by a loving, sacrificial leading of the spouse. In essence, he took the initiative to restore a relationship in dying for us while we were certified enemies. When Jesus died for the church, it wasn't because she was holy. It was to make her holy and to present her to himself. Now, Jesus weaves, Paul weaves in and out of marriage to Christ and the church back to uh, husbands and wives because the two, one is a mirror of the other. Every husband is a mini messiah in that sense, uh, playing out the ultimate reality, reality of Christ and the church. But it's interesting, I noticed some time ago, about 10 years ago, you know, that the purpose of laying down his life was to make her holy and present her uh, to himself. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I, think of disciple, I used to think of discipleship in relation to every member of the church except my wife. I, I just never thought of that category. I, I thought of kind of romantic categories and love categories, but I never thought discipleship category. And it's ironic, isn't it, that the one person in our marriage that actually represents the church is my wife and I have to present her along with everyone else mature to Christ on the last day which probably explains the fact that we stop praying together <laughs> we prayed as a family but we actually stopped praying together in any kind of regular fashion I had no sense that I was to create an environment in which Sandy was to thrive and inspired to become more like Jesus went off my radar completely So just as uh, Christ laid down his life for the church and took the initiative to right the relationship that had gone wrong, so it's within our responsibility to take the initiative to keep restoring the relationship between us and our spouses. doesn't matter who began it, we finish it. The buck ends with us. And so, you know, every guy is usually better at their spouses in saying, I'm sorry, what I found. But usually the reason why we apologize is to get them off our back. And they know that. It's got nothing to do with owning the, your side of the problem. It's just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because you're tired. She's packaged her pain in perhaps some barbed wire of anger. And you just want it to go away. And so your standard strategy is, I'm sorry. And on the surface it looks Christ-like. But really they know, you know. It's just, get off my back. And then someone some many years ago said, the reason why you say sorry is to invite the other person to tell you how they're feeling. I thought, really? What that meant was I ended up saying sorry a lot less but meaning it a lot more. So every time you apologize, it's not simply to own your side of the failure but to actually intentionally invite the other person 
your spouse to say, what was it like for you when I did this? I found that a very helpful distinction. So many things to say, not enough times to say it, and not enough time to say it. So whether you've been hurt or not, whether you're the innocent victim of an angry or tired wife, headship means taking the first step in restoring the relationship. You've been authorised to serve. And, uh, you know, whenever we do the surveys at church, occasionally we, we throw it out just to get some objective evidence. The, the standard request by every, spouse, every, every wife is, can you please help my son and my husband to... <laughs> they can feel like a kid. Can you please help my husband to listen to me and not just offer solutions? And it is about listening. 1 Peter 3 says that. Uh, uh, there was a guy in my year who um, was a pastor of a church and uh, on September 11th, the September 11th, when the planes went through the trade towers, uh, his wife took the bags, took the kids and left never to return. He lost everything. Lost his spouse, his children. She went off into a de facto relationship, walked away from Jesus, lost his house, lost his employment, lost his ministry. It all went on September 11th. And when I caught up with him, I said, Dave, uh, what happened? And he said, you know that verse in 1 Peter 3 that says, live with your wife with understanding? I didn't do it. Whoa. I didn't do it. Our problem is we keep thinking the relationship with our spouses is just our business. But um, it's, not just, it's, it's not just between me and my wife. It's me, her, her, me, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we don't think theologically about our relationships. So when I first married Sandy, we fought. Like, I mean, you've got a sense at the beginning of how different we are, right? Like, take Jesus out. There's really not much natural connection. <laughs> and, uh, and, like, we fought a lot. There were lots of argy-bargies going on, in, um, in, in those, especially those first six months. And then I read Ephesians 5. I read this passage one day from a quiet time, and I thought, ah, it dawned on me that, that what I was doing is, for as long as I kept comparing myself with Sandy, as though we played the same roles in this relationship, as though we, there was no distinction between us, that I... I I would keep falling into the same mistake. And the mistake was this. I would keep counting. You know, who's doing more? You know that, that little game we play? Who's doing more? And you'd always count in your favour because you're deluded. And what it does is it's like wind in the sails of self-righteousness that sort of provoke your self-righteousness and from that flows your anger. But then I read this passage and I realised that the crucified Lord of glory gets me to get my eyes off Sandy and onto him. And he says, Ray, when you feel hard done by, and when you feel like you have gone far enough and she has gone simply too far, then you take a long look at what I've done for you at the cross. And when you've gone as far as me, then you can draw a line in the sand. Up until then, boy, you just keep laying down your life for your bride. Now, you know, that was a paradigm shift for me. It's not like we haven't argued since that day, but a paradigm shift took place because I kept comparing myself with her and somehow Jesus was not intrinsic in our relationship. When my point of reference is actually not Sandy and who's doing more, my point of reference is the Lord Jesus. It's very easy, isn't it? You're giving all day in a church plant. You've got a thousand, you know, Christ is here. 
trying to move this person onto the next stage of their Christian walk, um, something to do with the kids. You know, it's just one issue after another. You're involved in people work, which means there's no real completion. <laughs> And you've got to learn that the nature of people, it's not like a carpenter who builds a house, stands back and says, isn't that fantastic? You don't often get that experience. Maybe a conversion will help you do that, but you know, it's not like they happen every day. And so there's a sense where there's a lot going for you and uh, going through your life. And um, it's very easy when you come home to think, I can clock off. But really, that's when our work begins. She is my qualification in ministry. <laughs> You know, she is my bachelor of theology. She, she, our relationship is the qualification that permits me to actually exercise any ministry beyond the house. I remember Mark Benici, a friend of mine, was about to church plant. And I said to him, after gaining a little bit of wisdom, I said, Mark, you'll know at the end of that first year whether you've been a good church planter if your wife feels more loved by the end of those 12 months. Make that your first criteria for how you measure how well the church plant goes. Well, as far as God is concerned, every marriage is to live out the ultimate relationship between Christ and the church. And uh, the church is described as Christ's bride, Christ's body, and then that's likened us to she is my body, I'm her, the two have become one. And, um, and so it, it is as instinctive as it was for me to have breakfast this morning, so it, so it needs to be in terms of caring for her because we have become one flesh as Christ is with the church. Um, so the next time your wife looks in the mirror and says she doesn't like what she's looking at, you just tell her, back off, honey, that's my body you're criticising. <laughs> and by the way, just on that, you know, it's interesting that you'll know how good a job you're doing as a husband by how a woman feels about her body. Because the words you use to kind of woo her and ongoing speak about her, her body actually... It will be measured by how she feels, how comfortable she feels with her body. And it's got absolutely nothing to do with objective standard of beauty. It's got to do with the language you use to constantly encourage her. Marriage is not an us and them. It's a team. Trust a little more and you'll be surprised if you give an inch, you won't necessarily take a mile. I've had to learn this. You know the command to encourage one another? You know, it begins actually in the marriage. And so often as the years go on, especially in the wear of tear of church planning, especially the early days, because usually at the time you're church planning, there's lots of babies and you're physically exhausted and life is hard anyway, and surviving with or without a church plant is hard. It's so easy to forget the thank yous and the little encouragements. And so much of marriage is about the little things. Now, you know that Ephesians 4.29 verse, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is for, for the building up of others. And it begins, first and foremost, with your spouse. So, let me close this section by saying... Oh, good. Let me close this section by saying that when it comes to evaluating your relationship and your order, you ought to take your marriage you know, in for a grease and oil, you know, as you do with a car, with a service. There ought to be essentially one question each of you has for your spouse, and it's really based on verse 31. And that is, wives, don't ask yourself, do I respect my husband? That's a useless question. Ask your husband, honey, do you feel respected by me? It's a simple, the, the kind of, the outworking of all of this comes down to one question and one reality. Honey, do you feel respected by me? Then listen, you probably won't like what you hear most of the time, and then try to respond accordingly to what's been said. In reverse, husbands don't bother saying, I don't think I'm in love with my husband, any, uh, with my wife anymore. Useless question, so what? 
Marriage is built on promises, not love. Now ask the question, um, honey, do you feel loved by me? And then, res- and then take that story where it needs to go. Hear where you failed, respond accordingly. And that's how verse 33 ends. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And can I say, you know, the unity of the church begins in the unity of the marriage, which begins in the bedroom. You know, at the end of a hard day, when you've got a, an avalanche of joys and sorrows that come your way, and how you two speak about the wounds from the congregation that day, as well as the celebrations, but how you speak about the wounds is the place where Satan will stick his nose. He's often found in, minister, in, in the beds of ministers and their wives. I forgot I didn't say that correctly. But anyway, he loves to stick his nose in because somehow we think that when it's 10 o'clock at night, I can actually somehow bitch about someone in the congregation because it's just me and my spouse. But you know you can't. You're actually called to be godly even then, to talk about the wounds, to acknowledge them, but to think Christ-like about those people and to do it together as a unit because that's where the evil one will forge the division in the church from that very moment. So guard that time, it's precious. Well, Sandra, why don't you talk about some of the stresses and whatever else you'd like to say at this point. Stresses. <laughs> what stresses are there in church planting? Just remembering back, I just remember the um, absolute demands on the home. And so our church home was where the church met. Our church home was where all the growth groups, our small groups met. Our church home was where our women's um, group met with the kids program. Our church home was the church office. Our church home was where um, people came for training. Everything happened in our church home. And, uh, and uh, just the wear and tear of the hospitality and the cleaning. I still remember when Ray was asked to go to South Africa during that, those early years. And uh, he was away for 17 days and I had three young kids at home. And after about two or three days, a beautiful woman in our church rang up and said, Ray's away, do you need some help? Um, can we do anything to practically help and care for you? And I stopped to think and I'm thinking... The doorbell stopped ringing, the phone stopped ringing. I'm not cleaning every day. I'm not cooking every day. And I just said to her, thank you very much. But I said, I probably need help when he comes back. <laughs> That's uh, just the wear and tear of those early days was exhausting. So learning to um, create space uh, within the home that uh, where I could rest was a very important thing. So Mondays was always a home day. We had nothing on. James hated Monday because nobody ever came over on Monday. But creating space within my home was very, very important and letting to guard that. The issue of privacy, um, which Ray's touched on, uh, I remember in the early days we went to a barbecue and there, were, there was a, 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 um, a man and he was talking about he just got married and he'd married a Greek woman and the, the Greek mother-in-law was ringing six or seven times a day since they got back from their honeymoon. And so he decided that he was going to look up the word privacy in, in Greek to talk to her about his need for privacy in the marriage. And he found that there's no word for privacy in the Greek language. <laughs> we did a bit of a survey at this uh, barbecue and there's no word for privacy in the Assyrians language that were there or the Lebanese or the Maltese and an Assyrian man I was the only Anglo-Saxon at this barbecue and the Assyrian man turned to me and he said he said privacy is something that you Anglos have made up (laughs) 
And I grew up with privacy. Um, but it is that whole issue of managing the fact that um, the, I think the big distinctive is not the, the amount of hours that uh, my husband works. The big distinctive that the biggest pressure is that whole issue of people are actually watching you and they're making comments. And like Ray said, it's, it comes part and parcel. They, they have a right to, to look at our marriage and look at our family and actually, uh, because we're not just teaching with our words, he's not just teaching with our words, he's teaching with the lives that we live. But managing that is, um, is a really, really um, important thing to learn. So being a, not taking things so personally. I still remember when this same Assyrian man who'd been in our home constantly for about the first two years of the church plant, and one day he was there for a meal, and at the end of it he looked at me and he said, you know, you're not bad for an Australian. <laughs> Commenting on the way I presented my house and, and the way I just cooked food. Now, if you know Assyrian culture, you can eat off their floor. Their houses are that clean. You open their cupboards and their crockery not only matches, but all the handles are turned in exactly the same direction. It looks like you're stepping into a showroom. Um, so, yes, I wasn't bad for an Australian. <laughs> But learning to take those comments and, and understanding them and not taking them so personally was very important. Managing Sundays. Uh, if you're a wife with young kids and you're highly involved in a Sunday, then find your Kath Olives. I, uh, in the early days, there's this beautiful woman who's now actually a minister's wife, Kath, and she came to me and she offered to care for my kids while I set up, while I ran around. And just knowing that my kids were safe and cared for was just a beautiful thing. So look for the Catholics in your church who can care for your children and uh, keep them safe. Um, feeling loved under pressure, I think, is, is uh, as I reflect back, was such an important thing. The reason why we church planted in the western suburbs of Sydney was because I actually said no to our first thing that God had laid on Ray's heart, and that was to go to Malta to be a missionary. And we got to about third year of Moore College, and I just was so overwhelmed with... I was very sick in pregnancy. We'd had two children by that, that stage. And I just said to him, I don't think I can go. And, uh, you know, it was on his heart to go to Malta to, to uh, reach his... Uh, his people group, um, but at that stage I just said, I just don't think I can do it. I think I'll be a mess if I go. And feeling very loved, um, even though I was saying no to something that he really wanted to do. Another time in our married life, um, I was doing kids and w women's work, and it got to about nine years into the church plant, and both ministries had grown. And I came to him and I said, look, I can't, I can't run both ministries something has to give and he said I'd really like you to do the women's work and I said to him I think I'm more suited for kids <laughs> and so just feeling loved in that whole process that he actually um, supported me and was willing for me to head in a direction that he would have preferred that if I'd uh, done the women's work at that stage um, so not feeling coerced by my husband not feeling pressured still leading me but not leaving me behind was a very, very important thing um, in making me feel loved uh, in the whole process. Um, for women, I think we have a big issue in that, I mean, I'm making a very generalised statement here, but men tend to compete with one another and women tend to compare. And it's one of those big issues of 
We compare on superficial things and on relationship things. We compare our houses. We compare the way we dress. We compare the way we raise our children. We even compare our ministries and our gifts. Um, And it's one of those things of actually um, learning to be content in who you are, in the marriage that God has given you, in the children he's given you to raise, and learning to be content in the gifts that he's given you. You, Any ministry outside your home, uh, is is bonus. Keep thinking, my first ministry is to my children. And then, if I'm able to, and if I'm, and, and depending on the gifts I've had, then making decisions of what you do outside your home. You don't have to be whatever it is that you think a minister's wife should be. What you need to do is understand how God has made you, the gifts that he's given you, and, uh, and land in that ministry. Um, uh, so if your ministry is hospitality and not a teaching ministry, then work according to your gifts. It's hard in church planning because there's so many needs. And, you know, in the early years, I was doing multiple, multiple things, working outside my gifting as well as within my gifting. But eventually trying to land where in the church you are gifted and where you are needed. I think um, knowing how each other works is a very important thing in marriage and ministry. Um, some people, some spouses need to know everything and some spouses uh, need to share everything. So for me, I don't need to know everything that's happening in the church. That's not an issue, but I, but I probably need to share more than, uh, more than most spouses. So just understanding how, how you work in your, your marriage and uh, what's important in terms of um, communication is very important. I think probably the most uh, profound comment by somebody who uh, that, that helped me to see, particularly as a young mum, um, when we first we planted at Blacktown, um, and I was very involved in our first church plant, and then we planted in Fairfield, and it was in the evening, and our Blacktown church had moved to the morning, and I'd had three kids by that stage, so I was not going to the evening church plant. It was about 7 o'clock at night. And I remember being at a barbecue. We were celebrating John Chapman's birthday, and Philip Jensen, who I don't think I ever had had any other conversation with except this conversation, he came up to me and he said, how's the Fairfield church plant? I didn't even know that he knew that we were planting at Fairfield. And I turned to him and I said, you know, I'm not really involved in that church plant thinking I'm not actually present. And he beautifully rebuked me and he said, that church plant would not happen without you. You are every bit involved in that church plant. And so as women, you may not be there all the time because of the commitment that you have in caring for your children, but your husbands cannot do what they're doing without your 100% support. And so realising that that you're in partnership with your husband is a very fundamental framework as you church plant together. There are a number of stresses that, uh, that I can share with you, but what we might do is open it up to questions. You can do that, yeah. Okay, that's good. Because yeah. we can keep talking. <laughs> or we can go for coffee. It could be a short seminar.
Hi, um, Joseph. Uh, I've been married for 10 years. Juni, uh, she's in Sydney. She wasn't able to make it. We just, our baby's just only six months old, and we just couldn't really <laughs> think of coming together. So, uh, my question is um, uh, because we've been married for 10 years, and we recently had that child, and it was a pretty late sort of kind of coming. So, I sometimes just afraid that she's too anxious and she's very caught up. Um, and sometimes I accuse her of being too caught up with the baby. Um, I understand fully, as, as a mother, she feels responsible, uh, breastfeeding, everything else. Just, the baby is totally dependent on her. Um, but somehow I think my gender is, I don't want her to think that her life is all about the baby. Um, so I think I made a mistake of saying, don't be too anxious. <laughs> But by prayer Oops. and petition, <laughs> with thanksgiving, <laughs> present your request to God. That much. <laughs> <laughs> and the peace of God, you know, that transcends all your understanding, including your child. Um, so what, what's the what's best way to, to help her um, feel loved, supported? And I think her comeback is always, you're not supporting me enough. Um, so how, how can I work this through? Um, first mums, it, it is a very common thing. Um, they, yeah, they're, they're so um, anxious and wondering if they're a good mum, if they're doing the right thing. You, if, uh, every time I visit a new mum, one of the things I ask is, you know, are you getting a lot of advice from people? And they're absolutely overwhelmed with advice that seems to contradict, which makes them even more uncertain if they're doing the right thing. And so they, they're sleep deprived. They're exhausted from breastfeeding and uh, you, it's just, they're highly, highly emotional. And so giving her time and space um, and not uh, pressuring her into, you know, um, uh, even being able to leave the baby for a certain period of time to, to spend time, but working at her own time. I do, I do think that um, I did not invest in our marriage as I should have as a young mum. It took a long time for me to actually... We went out on, on dates, but I was still thinking about the kids. I wasn't sort of present with my husband on those, those dates. And it took me a long time before I actually would leave the children overnight and go away with Ray. And, um, and when we started to do that, that's, that's when we really connected again. But that was years down the track. Um, so... Yeah. It, yeah, a trip to Aldi is probably not a date. A Just keep to talking, Aldi. brother. Just keep digging that hole. <laughs> and with a big. Can I, Jazz, can I just ask? Um, you do need to. Can we get the full name? Church and. Can you just. What, do you mind me asking, what was your wife like before you had a baby? Was she ministry minded before she had the child? Yeah. Pretty much involved together yeah. in the ministry. Chances are, why don't you just trust that it's still the same wife that you've got, <laughs> and that what she's going through is a particular yes. phase that is actually a wonderful time and very demanding time. This is the mistake I would make with Sandy. I'd forget, you know, that who have I actually married here? You know, I, the reason why I married is because she was ministry-minded. Your fear is that you know the kingdom of God is bigger than you know the child, and and. Yeah. And your, your, your male task-centered goal setting is kicking into play. You've got to resist the urge to give into that and trust that it's the same wife. I mean, she's, you know, and it may not be on your time frame. Yes. Um, 
And sure, if it's like five years from now, but, but usually the second child uh, and usually just surfacing. Can I say, it was, I don't know, culturally, I know with um, Chinese women, they stay at home for a whole month before they go out. Is that, uh, I know with uh, some of the Chinese that we've had in our church. That, yeah. And whereas Sandy, within a week, she had the baby in the papoose and she was traveling in, in the city. Yeah. And, she's a, you know, and so you got, there are different wives who kind of respond to it differently. Just kind of work with her. And uh, let the Holy Spirit do some work there, you know. Yeah. He'll, he'll convict whatever she'll need to be convicted of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm getting you to resist the urge to say those things that uh, you'd like to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, hi guys. Um, I'm Graham, married to Ali for 17 years, um, from Tasmania, UK before that. Um, you mentioned uh, from time to time having uh, a service, oil change, grease up, all that sort oh, yeah. of stuff, uh, and you gave us one question each. Uh, is there more uh, that you um, do, uh, either for yourselves or advise to others, for having a bit of a service um, check-up yeah. sort of thing? Um, and if so, what might that be, or is it just the one question? that you line each other up I like with. to keep I'm a kiss kind of principle keep it simple stupid yep. so you know one question's enough for me but it really is the door opener I find now of course with every piece of information you get you want to explore it further and resist the urge to get defensive uh, what I noticed when I was a marriage counsellor and what I noticed about myself is people are very good at describing their hurt and their spouse's pain uh, spouse's sin what we've got to get to is understanding our sin and our spouse's pain. <laughs> and really, those questions are, are really a journey into that reality. Um, because that's really what resolves tensions in the end. Feeling like you've been heard, that your pain has been recognised, and, and your spouse has owned it, their contribution towards it. You know? And that's the journey of resolving a lot of that tension stuff. And then, you, you know, that's, that's, that's the grease and all. So the questions are really openers, but of course... It's more than one question. It's really, you know what it is? It's a desire to know. You know, I remember Mark Driscoll once in a sermon described, um, he likened marriage uh, to, uh, you know, when a country conquers another one, you know, they stake their flag in the ground and they conquer, but they, what they then don't do is explore. You know, they, 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 they've, they've, per- they've conquered this piece of turf, this island, you know. I know it's a very male, mas- masculine way of approaching that. You know, but stay with the point if you can. But they don't tend to explore what they've actually conquered, and it's a mutual thing. You know, it's a mutual conquering. You know, she's mine, I'm hers, that sort of thing. But we tend to leave it there, and, and there's a whole. The rest of your life is about finding out who the person you're married is. It's it's about progressive revelation. You know, the same model that you use in understanding the God who has revealed Himself from Genesis one right through to His Son uh, is really the mindset you're doing. I you know, I want to exegete my wife. If that's a metaphor that works with you, I'm going to let her, you know, not come, not ACG and bring into, but draw out <laughs> what's there. And I know some of us are better at it than others, but really, your heart is 99% of it. Just be one who wants to know the other person. And because, um, and you know, being known is really at the heart of, of love. Yeah. And that means space, can I say? You don't want to end up like that, that couple in their 70s in a darkened room with the TV sitting on Jason recliners, having nothing to do with each other because there's no talking left. Because they never worked on their marriage when the kids were around. That's a classic mistake. 
And then often you think, why, why did they divorce at 65? Now? I mean, you're close to death, don't you want to get... But I realised, actually, if the kids have been distracting their marriage. It's, you know, the, the kids have actually... And the grandkids, but what happens when they're alone? Their marriage can't sustain the silence because there's nothing there. So you've got to keep working at it throughout that journey. Babies, teenagers, yeah. Can I just say one thing? that um, There was one statistic that I heard that really motivated us to pray much more regularly because we had a we, when the kids were young we prayed very regularly as a as a family it was just i don't know when because i'm an organized ordered person young kids just just our, our house was like routine but then when the kids grew older and started leaving home then then we just got into really bad patterns we would eat at really odd times and things were much more fluid because we didn't have kids to order our family life around our, our home life and uh, there was a statistic that said, you know, Christians are not that far behind non-Christians in terms of divorce rates. Sort of one in five Christians will get divorced. Um, but if a couple prays regularly together, their divorce rate goes to one in 1,100 and something. So I went, whoa, that's a... And, and, and it is because if you pray every day then you, you can't pray with somebody... With each that other. You, with each other. Mm-hmm. You can't pray with each other if you're angry with one another. So it forces resolutions on a daily basis. And I think that that's what it is. So it's, it's, it's a very good motivation to pray with your spouse on a regular basis. I think there's a question over here. I'd just like to hear your reflections uh, past the really young kid stage and as the kids move into teenagers and what that does for your marriage and your ministry, particularly by then I'm assuming your ministry is pretty well established. Uh, and yeah, what, what does teenage years do to that? Can I say that it always feels like ministry's in flux? It never feels established. <laughs> but yeah. Well, the great Jim Ramsey once said, is he here? Uh, he, he's out talking to someone. Yeah. That'd be right. Uh, Jim said, you're physically exhausted when the kids are young and you're emotionally exhausted when they're teenagers. And those beautiful kids, they get demon-possessed and something happens. <laughs> and you try not to take it personally, but it feels personal. <laughs> And it really is hard. Like one of our three kids, there was a massive personality. And I'm sure it was hormonal. And you could tell she was hating herself in the stuff that was coming out of her mouth. Or I disclosed the gender. But anyway, <laughs> there's two of them, so you don't know which one. And, um, and we kind of got her back at about 18 or 19. That was very hard. It's, it's interesting. I found young babies phase hard. Uh, Sandy found probably the teenage life our kids are teenagers, probably hard. Would that be right, Sam? Yeah. Yeah, young kids didn't phase me, except for being sick during pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're just, yeah, but uh, that thing about ministry, I mean, because what happens, you, you, they become teenagers, but it's about the time you're hitting 40 anyway, and so you'll go through your natural midlife crisis, and mine went from 40 to 50 in an unsustained sense of failure through the whole time. So, yeah, you're dealing with a lot of stuff that's, you know, just just below the surface, you know, and you've got to acknowledge it. Most of it's ego that you need to repent of, but, you know. Um, they're all happening at the same time, you see, yeah. Hi, I'm um, Ali. I'm Graham's wife. So, yeah, like you said, we've been married 16 years. We've been in ministry. It's 17? It's great to see you. He's much better at dates than I am. It's great to see you sitting together. Excellent start. Um, I just wanted to encourage... <laughs> oh, nice hand over the shoulder. <laughs> Don't say anything. I'm not going to be happy with, darling. All right? <laughs> um, no, I was just going to encourage um, I, Graham, really, and, and the guys here. I've spoken to a lot of 
wives here at this conference and um, at other conferences and at church with our new guys going into ministry. And a lot of the wives have said that um, the big struggle they have is trying to get their husband to understand they need a rest day. And I'm very fortunate because Graham, what we were saying, he's very, um, he will take a rest day. He loves his time off. So, um, but I was just thinking, um, I just wanted to encourage the guys really who are going into ministry that it's a privileged position where you are actually in control of your own diaries hmm. and um, you can be involved in your family because you have that sort of job that is, can be based around the home. Um, yeah, and just wanted to encourage people to read the uh, Going the Distance book, which I have tried to ask other guys to, who are going into ministry to read, and often the ones that really need to read it don't actually read it. <laughs> so, um, Good idea. That's yeah, a very important just, point. Just, uh, it's a really hard job, isn't it, ministry? But at the same time, there's so, so much um, privilege we have with uh, what we can do with our time. I'll tell you why it's so important too. There's the rest, there's it, the, you know, your spouse needs time. You need to give expression to your relationship. But there's, a, a, there's another theological point, and that is, who do you think's running this church? It's actually, you, you know, that, that kind of driven hyperactivity. Now, you know, I, I like working hard. I don't apologize. My model is work hard, rest well. So I want to keep both, you know. I want to give my best for Jesus in, in the kind of broader scheme as well as my family, but I want to rest well because when you drop tools, so to speak, with all those 15 things that you didn't get done on the day before your day off, you're saying, Jesus, I believe you're in charge of this church. And it's a very important theological statement you're making. Yeah, it as comes much down to a lack of trust, doesn't it, that work can't... It doesn't feel like it, but actually you. that's what it yeah. is in the end, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because having a day off was an issue in our marriage because Ray wasn't taking a day off. But when my... Um, I, when my ministry outside of MBM, KidsWise, began to, to sort of mm. come in, I wasn't taking a day off. And so, so he had to sit down and say, honey. <laughs> if it keeps then going on like this, it's not going to work. <laughs> so it has been... I've restrained an, myself until it has right been, now. It has been an issue. Like, you know, it's, it, it's not just men who don't take their day off. It actually um, can be point, the Sam. woman. Yeah. The other thing in, ta- in doing that, we... When the kids were young, I, I naturally found it really easy to spend time with my kids, really, you know, play with kids, that sort of thing. Ray was a, sort of quite a natural at it. Um, and uh, and uh, he, when James was about five or four, um, he just uh, built in an hour a week with each child. And I did the same. So he'd so have one an on hour one-on-one. One on one. So he'd have an hour with James, an hour with Amy, an hour with Maddie, and I would do exactly the same. Um, and it just, uh, that, so we had our day off plus that hour, and that was so crucial in him building individual relationship with each of our children, you know, for both of us. And our kids, like Maddie still talks about when she was in preschool, and I was working one day a week in a local Christian school, and Ray would drop myself and the older two off at the school, and Ray would take Maddie to this milk bar and... At eight, from 8 o'clock till 9 o'clock, each Thursday morning, they would work their way each week through the flavours of the milkshakes. They would share a milkshake. And she still remembers her time back then. And so it, it is that whole thing. And James still remembers when, uh, you know, he had organised time with Daddy and he was, you know, whatever it was. He loved 
when Ray got the hose out, when you could have hoses because of no water restrictions, and he would jump up on the trampoline and Ray would hose him with the trampoline because it was stinking hot where we lived. He still remembers the day that somebody came to the door just at the beginning of time together, that's what our kids call it, time together, and Ray opened the door and said, I'm really sorry, I can't see you now, I've got an appointment, which was his son. So he'd blocked out this hour to spend with his son. And so important that your kids hear you say uh, no as well as hear you say yes. You know, but getting that balance right in family is so, so important. Carving that time out with, with us as a family, individually, corporately, our family holidays, you never regret that. Can, can I ask this question? Uh, have you cancelled and cancelled ministry couples who have struggled to have kids um, and then you know, found, you know, found the reality they can't have kids. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for ministry couples who are you know, obviously involved in kids' ministry, involved in family church, but you know, every time you come to minister people, you're, you know, you've, you're in front of you, the reality, you're not able to have kids. And um, yeah, Can you talk about yeah, advice you give to ministry couples? Yeah, what a big grief it is. It's a grief that the Bible so regularly resonates with. Mm-hmm because of the joy of children and the grief of not being able to have them. And so there's just a lot of weeping with those who weep. Just got a text the other day from this one dear lady who, it's, it's the fourth attempt she's carried a child from IVF and you know found after eight weeks it was, the heart was no longer beating. And, you know, there aren't, I mean, bottom line is it's always coming back to the core realities of contentment in Christ, you know, Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. But staying, getting there with that grief is just a whole lot of tears and a whole lot of casting your cares before your Father in heaven. And then thinking that, as, as I've heard so many parents without children thinking, I now want to take this opportunity to enter. It may be fostering. What a prof- I honour the couples in my church that have engaged in the ministry of fostering Adoption's hard in this country because, you know, abortion is basically taking children away uh, where they've not had a chance to live and be, be adopted out. So, um, but, but a lot of fostering that leads to adoption, we've had a number of them in our church and we really honour that. And I, that's one area as well as, you know, seeking to see that the children of your church are your children as well. Um, that it takes a, a community of God to actually raise up a child of God. So, but in saying all that, that's, I'm just so aware of the grief. You know, I, I hear Hannah's crying. So, so profound that Eli thought she was drunk <laughs> in the te- temple. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about um, expectations that the congregation might have on what a minister's wife yeah. should or shouldn't be. Um, so I never felt those expectations and I just went ahead and did what you did what I yeah. thought I should do yeah. being me um, but then later on I uh, found that I'd hurt or disappointed people because I hadn't been what they thought I should be um, just how you address expectations that you didn't even know were there or how you communicate with the congregation and maybe what your husband as the minister can do to help um, just clearly communicate with everyone so that everyone has the same kind of expectations doesn't or understands much. what the expectations mm. are. It doesn't take much for the husband to, to actually just state it, drop it in here and there in a sermon. That's all you have to do to make the point. You know, that um, uh, what I do is I sometimes, I always remember back in Kiama, which is where Sandy grew up, and I attended the church for a year, not when she was there, ironically. 
And there was uh, Marion Gabbett, who was this dynamo of a woman. She was an excellent speaker. She was, uh, she was just a dynamo, you know. She's very gifted. Um, and then she was followed by Helen Mansfield, who's a much more gentler, quieter, much more reserved, very, you know, played a different role. And, um, and both of them were exercising the gifts that God had given them. One was up front, it was involved in 20 different ministries, because, and the other one, had, was, I think, might have been involved in a Bible study. Um, I think hospitality were her gifts, support, both supportive of their husbands, but they looked very differently, you know. And, and so the church doesn't employ the wife, is rule number one. They employ the pastor, <laughs> okay, if I could be blunt. Two, the woman's got to work according to their gifts in the zone, time zone she's in. So with her children and babies, that's her first responsibility. Um, and women tend to do, and probably need to do, less ministry outside the church at that time. Um, so, outside the, home. outside the home. So, really, the point is, you can drop that in here and there in different ways if it becomes an issue. We've not, I don't think we've had a big. It's been interesting. It's church been an planting. Us, one of the one of the great things about church planting is that, like in our early days, we saw a lot of people get converted in the first three years. They were converted out of Catholicism or Orthodoxy. And so they didn't have a minister's wife front work. <laughs> and so I was like a surprise to them. Like, whoa, we've never, we don't have any expectations because we never had a priest. They did make it who easy. Had a wife. So yeah. I think I had it easy in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it's, it's you feeling, um, you making choices, not being coerced to, because if you do something unwillingly, it's, yeah, it's that thing. Um, of, you know, yeah. learning to speak straight, yeah. whether it's to your spouse, in a clear, undemanding, sometimes you might need to be firm, like Sandy was like with that conversation about Sabbath, or to the congregation and, and just say unapologetically, you know, um, I won't be doing that, with a big smile, saying it's very important, but, that, you know... Um, and then just you, you, have, you kind of explain your role and, and just try to, you, you, you're constantly educating them. Um, the worst thing you can do is just feel guilty and then kind of defer all the time to expectations and you'll die under the weight of that because mm. there's just too many different expectations. Now, I know in some cultures, in some contexts, there's greater and lesser and you've got to take some nuance. But having it from the front is very important, you know. And, uh, and that's where guys have got to protect their wives, whether it's... Things like days off or holidays. I had a guy, someone very close to us in the early days, decided to put his holiday, his wedding, during our holidays, and we were going to be elsewhere. And uh, he even, and he had some money, so he could fly me to that. To, and uh, and I was getting pressure from here to, you know, that was not going to happen. And uh, and she was right. Um, and I felt like the meat in the sandwich. But you know what? I shouldn't have because my first responsibility is to do what Jesus wants me to do. And, and the order was, number one, <laughs> and it works from there. So I needed, to, I needed to communicate and hold my ground. Now, interestingly, the next year, uh, sorry, someone said, I was watching how you're going to handle that, Ray, because uh, you did, the year before, you didn't marry me uh, when we were going to put the wedding on that day. They moved in their case. So it was about them being consistent. And so there's certain things that are non-negotiable. You know, family time was going to be... I was going to guard that, yeah. So that's, I moved on, but yeah. So communicating is what I want to say from the front and then one-on-one. And learning that, that you're going to disappoint people. You are going to disappoint people because they're going to have an expectation and you're not going to fill all those expectations. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah. You have a, a good phrase that I keep saying, you play to an audience of one. 
You only have to please one person, that's your Father in heaven. But it is easier to say than do It's though. very easy to say that. <laughs> Especially if you're but a people-pleaser people like me. It's very good to write on the top of your prayer diary. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Play to an audience of one. Sorry. Yeah, we have, um, we have five kids. Got another one on the way. Oh, I'm so jealous. Another seven. Yeah, so we're doing well at oh, There's out. a guy here from, he's got, where is he? 16. That man. No, no, Chris. Yes, one of 16 kids. <laughs> Actually, 17, because I think one passed away. Yeah, Your auntie had 17. Yeah, my auntie had that's 16 in Malta. Yeah, but that's Malta. <laughs> this is Australia. Yeah, my question is, I guess, uh, more towards you, Ray, in regards to... Uh, we're pretty intentional in our ministry starting at the home with our ministry with our kids. How, what does that framework look like for you and how are you sort of drawn into the priorities with your work at church, with the you know, ministry that you've got going on at home? So that last sentence... How are you drawn into your ministry at work or ministry with the church and, and sort of what response... How do you sort of frame your responsibility at home with your own kids and how does that priority look like? And well, so much now it's different because I've only got one at home yeah. and they've grown up. And, it's probably you know, more in the young days. Yeah. They're coming back. Um, so now, yeah, it's, 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 the irony now is I'm finding it hard to do hospitality from home because Sandy's so involved. She's a full-time staff member functionally in the church, you know? I mean, she's not paid, but she functions. She's my best staff worker. I mean... Church saves about 80000 just having her on too. Uh, but um, uh, so I've got to work. Actually, it's just a modern, it's a problem. I've got to work out how to do hospitality when she's doing things and, you know, it's going. Because I get out. home on Sunday after him. So yeah. I get home about one. She's running meetings. I and get so home about 1.30 really, and then. You know what it is? It's constantly life. adapting to whatever situation you're in. Doing it, it's got to work for you. <laughs> so, um, so, but yours is about work-family balance. Is that what it was? I mean, uh, you know, being at home, you know, in the early days when there, you know, uh, when there weren't answering machines, we just didn't have an answering machine, the, the, or, or the answering machine came and it rang. And I remember one guy, he was at the table eating with us, and the phone rang. We didn't pick it up. We just had a rule around the family when we Kids were together. Kids didn't even flinch. Nobody moved. Yeah, and he's it, looking at us going, the phone's thinking, ringing. The phone's ringing. He said, yeah, that's right, but uh, this is more important right now. We're eating, so we don't answer the phone. And, and he was really getting unnerved by it. But after about the sixth phone call in that one time, uh, he said, I can see why you don't pick it up. <laughs> I just because it was the same person that were in a crisis. And, yeah. He but, actually said that, he said, but that could be me ringing you. <laughs> and I said, but George, you're here. We're talking to you. We've invited yeah. you for dinner. And then at the end yeah. of that, he said, I'm so glad you didn't pick that up because Ray would have been on the phone that entire dinner yeah. if you had a picked up the phone. You constantly want to, it, it just kind of have a relational model, you know, that, has, that reflects an order that begins with spouse, children and church. So that picture of my son seeing me say no to that person. But if it was a crisis, I would have said no to my son. Because the principle is I want him to know that he's top priority, that I love him actually more than the church. But I want him to know that he's not the centre of the universe and that other people matter as well if a crisis came. So you, it's kind of that you're working to a framework of principle that kind of I, I have to order things, otherwise I don't do them. So I put in my diary. In fact, Sandy put in my diary once, sends... Sandy Flowers, and she went through every three weeks, she wrote it in, you know, send, give after Sandy the, Flowers. After two years, I had to write, yeah. buy she Sandy to, Flowers, but not from the petrol station. Yeah, <laughs> I, that was the other thing, apparently. I said, how do you know they're from the petrol station? She said, well, they smell like petrol, and they die the next, they, they wilt the next day. They're usually good, two good clues. Apparently, it means more if you go out of your way. <laughs> Um, 
so yeah, working to hours, you're like, you know, I think we just kind of are unlimited in our work hours, and I, I just think it's bad planning, bad, you know, we need to work to, if we're better ordered in our life, uh, and we work to time often, not just, because ministry is simply never-ending, it's, it's just a bottomless pit, and it, you know, working 100 hours is not smart, or 90 hours, you know, so roughly work to hours, Prioritize your work hours. Work out what you want to, what time you want to spend with your family, how you want to spend it, and then kind of have the stability to stick to it. And if you're no good, I, I sort of wander off. I'm a classic, you know. My default position is chaos, so I have people in my life who hold me accountable to my structure. Um, you know, there's one guy who every fortnight asks me a series of seven questions, you know, and um, and uh, it includes things to do with my personal ordered life to keep me on track. So. I keep making the main thing the main thing, yeah. But you've got to spend time to prepare your priorities. It takes almost days to get an order that you stick to. It's like your quiet time. You have to plan for that. I can spend a whole day planning my prayer patterns for the year. Because if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. It just, or it's just willy-nilly. So it's that preventative. It's like a conference like this. You know, if you, unless you spend a little, a couple of hours thinking about what you're t- going to take home from this, it'll just sift away. It'll be a be a lovely couple of days and, you, and the value of it will be lost. Uh, quick question. Um, I understand that being a pastor is very relational all the time and it's not just clocking in numbers in a computer. Um, church planning, you have work when you come home, you have meetings in your mm. house and I find that at the end of the day when you finally get a chance to talk to your husband, um, you get the short end of the stick because they've been relating to everyone all day yeah. and everyone's exhausted but you've patiently waited to have time with them. Um, do you have any tips on when's a better time to have those harder conversations or even just to talk about life? Do you book in a time in through the day as an appointment or like what's a better you way? Know, that's that's not a bad thing to do. Depending yeah. on how you're wired, if you're both happy with that, book in time together. It's funny, we book everyone else in, but it's a statement of priority and, and, mean, and, and follow through with it. It's one thing, put it in the diary. But I think it's a, that, that, that is the solution as well as then it's a heart, isn't it? Will I, will I be emotionally present? Because that's what everyone always talks about. You're physically there, but not emotionally present. So, you know, guys who are disordered in their sermon preparation and just the kind of the back end of the week really impacts their family. I, I was talking to a, a young church plant, excellent guy. And um, when he was telling me he was in the car typing his sermon because they were getting from one place to another on a Saturday, you know, I said, you probably need to get your deadline and your sermon done a little bit early if Saturday's your day off, you know. It's just, you're, you're always communicating that the spouse and family are running second. And um, so booking time is critical. And then kind of, you know, as my kids used to do when I wasn't concentrating, they grabbed my head, Dad, are you listening to me? <laughs> Sometimes grab the skull of your spouse and saying, honey, I love you, but I need your attention. <laughs> and, you know, mobile phones, get rid of them. Those, those are deadly now. They're ruining life. Hey, guys. Sandy, thank you so much for telling us about saying no to Malta. Um, <laughs> I've been married to Jesse for a, a mere six months, and I'm definitely feeling the tension between trying to be honest with Jesse about how I'm feeling about certain <laughs> things, um, but also feeling like a hindrance in some ways. Is there any, do you have any comment on, um, like, is there a point where you think, I need to suck this up and I need to just keep going? And also, Ray, is there some sort of way that you support or think about that kind of thing? Like, wanting to understand where Sandy's at, but also wanting to encourage her to keep kind of plugging on? 
you know, looking back, saying no to Malta, um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure if I, if I did go, that God, you know, would have sustained me through it. Um, I, so I still have confidence that that would have happened. I just knew it was incredibly hard. Also, I knew I wanted to have more children, and pregnancy for me is nine months and often in hospital. And I, the, the whole thing of being in a, in a foreign country, having two young kids, not having family support, that was the thing that I just went, you know, I, you know, I was very fortunate we did have another child, but I just knew I needed family support. So part of it was, it was about, um, you know, me being physically very vulnerable in having children. Um, and I, that, was, that was the big killer in, in saying no to Malta. So going to the western suburbs was still just as scary and just full of, you know, I was going to working class, I was going to multi-ethnic. Kayama was middle class and there was White. one, one it, Italian family in the whole community. You know, I, I grew up in, in, in an Anglo-Saxon culture that was very middle class. So, but I, but I still knew that my parents were not that far away. Ray's mum was around the corner. Um, I knew I had the support, um, even though it was still going to be incredibly hard. Um, and it Although was having my mum around the corner wasn't always necessarily a, no, going no, to be a blessing. No, it was interesting. Ray's mum, like that, it, like that. As soon as we moved to the west, she rang me every day. When are you coming? When are you coming? And I said to Ray, "This is insane. Like, I can't." go to her house and spend hours in her house every day. But it was interesting. I actually said to her about three months into the church plant, I said, Rita, I love you. And every second Thursday, I'm going to bring the kids and I'm going to take you wherever you want to go and I'm going to spend the whole day with you. And all of a sudden, all the demands dropped. And it was, she just wanted to know that I wanted to spend time with her and that I would trust the grandchildren with her. Because um, she had essentially raised all the other grandchildren. I was the only daughter-in-law that didn't hand the children over and go back to work full-time. So she thought I didn't trust her with it. So partly it's just I needed to understand her world and her framework and show that I did love her and wanted to spend time with her. So, you know, again, it's, it is talking straight and trying to work out how you communicate that. You know, the, um, we, we, I mean, the thing is, the backdrop to that is I married her with one of the issues that we were going to be missionaries. Yeah. So, you know, we I, really, I really had some arsenal up my sleeve. Yeah. It was, <laughs> what that's what we were planning to do. But, it was but, like I changed the rules halfway through. And he's looking at me. I still remember, it was a long weekend in October. I said on the Friday, I don't think I'd go to Malta. And he's going, so I sold but that's for a where weekend. we're going. That's where we're going. I remember sulking for a weekend. Sort of, and, then, and then, I, you know, it, it's kind of like you can't just talk theology. It, it's got to shape the way you think. So I thought... Well, God is sovereign. He knew this was going to happen, you know. And then, well, there are plenty of wogs and Maltese in western suburbs. Why don't we go there? She was open to that. Okay, you know, like I could have pushed hard in that direction, but I'm hitting against, you know, I know Sandy well enough, you know, that when she says something like that, she really means it. And, uh, and I have seen too many ministers' wives dragged through reluctantly and at the end of it burnt out shells who despise their husbands and it is just not a pretty picture. You know, no one wins in that except Satan. So, you know, you've got to believe in the providence and sovereignty of God and uh, he's working his purposes out. And then there you go, we sent a missionary to Malta. So we still ended up going through Jeff and Robin Kushkiri. <laughs> and he still talks about going there and now to and, retirement. Yeah, I'm still working on the retirement thing, you know. <laughs> but now I've got a granddaughter in Australia. But she didn't come to Rudy Hill, so I can't push too hard on that. 
Um, I, I think I, but too. can I just say, you've got to give, you've got to trust. It's, uh, it's that coercive thing. We've got to resist the urge to be coercive. That is not Christ-like leadership. I know sometimes you've got to stake your ground on some kind of sin, holiness issues, but you just can't make someone... I want her to do it willingly. Otherwise, what's the point? It gives no glory to God. You know? There was two times in the last 23 years where I was very ill. And uh, both times... Um, uh, you know, our future was uncertain in terms of my health. And both times he was willing to walk away from ministry as a result. And so I felt very loved. Actually, that was really helpful for me because you know, your identity is bound up in ministry, right? Whether you like it or not, there's a sense where you don't realise it, but it's kind of, it's the suit you wear. And, and so when she, it was actually three times. I have a memory, it's three times. You were, you, your chronic fatigue had hit her and so forth. And I thought, yeah, I had chronic fatigue could twice. Could I give up? Can I walk away from this? And then well, I had to work that through. And once I did, I thought, well, it was quite liberating then. Yeah, I didn't have to do this, you know. Uh, I can actually walk away. And then I choose to stay. Well, uh, you know, Sandy was able to do it. And it's quite liberating, you know. Uh, you're there for it. It helps you kind of shape your motives as well, which is, which is a good thing. Yeah. That's Ray, it. Yeah, can I get you to pray? And Yeah. Father in heaven, well... Father, where most of us, Lord, are in marriages, or we know people who are in marriages, uh, we're husbands, Father, who um, want to be like you, Lord, like like you, Lord Jesus, and lay down our life for our brides, as you lay down your life for for us. We recognise in talks like this, certain stories get highlighted that can provoke guilt and and challenges. Father, what we want is to grasp again the fact that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus that it's a fresh start today. And Lord, we pray that uh, every, I pray for every brother here, Lord, that he will indeed seek to be a God-like father and a Christ-like husband. And uh, however, whatever context he finds himself in and whatever marriage he finds himself in, that he will seek to lead by laying down his life and serving the bride that providentially you have given to him. And I pray for every bride here, Lord, every wife, uh, that she would seek to honour her husband. And give glory to you, Lord Jesus, by showing respect to the man that she has said, I do to, before you. And Father, when it gets hard, we pray that we'll keep remembering behind our spouses is the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can't do it for our spouses, but we can always do it for you, Jesus. And may that truth, that single truth, liberate us to live out the wonderful calling of what it means to be a, a, a husband and a wife in Christ. And then, Father, help us to, from that vantage point, model and minister to the church of God that you have given us in Jesus' name. Amen.